Hey, so this is the video version of uh, the article that we put out yesterday on what just happened on news, having a look at the state of COVID in the UK uh, in mid-October. So if you want to have a look at the graphs that go alongside it, have a look on our blog uh, there or follow us on Twitter at WDHHblog, the same on Facebook and at what just happened news on Instagram. So deep breath here goes, we're going to try and put together a concise state of the nation on where the UK currently stands in terms of its fight against COVID. Summer's over, public sentiment is hardening like the coming ice. I live in the north, it, it's harsh, forgive the dramatic. Uh, and the information we're being presented with is overwhelming, confusing, and it's often been straight up incorrect or deliberately obfuscated. In my humble and inexpert opinion, these factors leave us in the highest risk situation we've been in since the beginning of the crisis. So let's start with the raw hard data first. One of the issues with our accounting and tracking of COVID-19 has been the evolution of testing. In March, April and May, testing was largely limited to in-hospital targeted tests. That means that our accounting of how many cases were in community circulation is virtually meaningless in comparison. Some estimates put it at 10 to 20 times the official figure when you look at the peak back in uh, March and April. Whilst we'd expect the proportion of tests coming back positive to be extremely high at that time and then dropping off as widespread testing was rolled out. So despite an incredibly slow start, testing was ramped up reasonably quickly, but it's been plagued by problems. For example, during the summer months, testing was reliant on lab services being provided by masters, PhD and postdoc candidates who then went back to their normal roles as universities began to reopen, leaving the testing system with huge delays. We've also counted these tests in some highly questionable ways, with the government quoting the number of tests theoretically available on any one day as the number of tests taken for a number of months, or just straight up counting them twice, uh, which now appears to have largely been rectified. So on first glance, the daily case numbers may show us to be in a far more serious situation than we were even at the peak in April, but this wouldn't be a fair comparison. What should alarm us, however, is the case trajectory. We're now well established in the territory of the exponential. This means the R number is well above one and cases are spreading rapidly in community transmission. To take this data out of isolation, excuse the pun, uh, we need to consider hospital admissions and deaths. A common argument that I keep hearing is that testing figures must be incorrect because they didn't immediately precede a proportional jump in hospitalizations. But the relation between these figures is complex and influenced by a number of factors. The first and most obvious is that people simply don't get that ill straight away. There's usually a few days between a positive test and hospitalization, then it can be weeks before that same patient dies if they do. And in delays, add in delays in reporting, and there's a serious lag between cases and deaths. The second is the demographic factor. So over summer, younger people have been contracting the virus at a high rate. They have a habit of not getting particularly ill. As a critical mass of young people harbour a, a reservoir of COVID, the disease starts to slip through age demographics, um, as shown in the breakdown of cases, if you have a look at the blog. As the cases start to get to older people, we begin to see the corresponding uptick in hospitalisation. Looking at capacity... We appear to be a long way below the peak we previously experienced, but the national data belies regional variations. So to take Liverpool as an example, as of 15th of October, 95% of ICU beds are occupied. That figure should be scaring the hell out of us. To counter another point that I keep hearing regularly, the, the death statistics are overhyped due to the reporting methods. Depending on which statistic is being used at any one time, some cases are counted where there's been a death in the 28 days following the positive test. This, in theory, is a good point. Poor use of those statistics has eroded the credibility of these figures, but the point is moot when you consider that hospital beds are reaching capacity. We should take a moment to celebrate the advances we've made in treatment of COVID-19. The use of tried and tested steroids such as dexamethasone uh, have massively decreased ICU emissions and increased ICU survival rates. 
while we also have a much better understanding of how best to oxygenate patients, but those patients have still caught COVID-19 and still need a hospital bed and extensive aftercare. So what are the Nightingale hospitals? So yes, these emergency makeshift wards uh, have provided a massive potential increase in bed capacity, but no, they do not miraculously increase our available ICU trained doctors and nurses. As remarkable as their mobilisation was, nobody should be expecting first class NHS care if we start to utilise them. I, I'm thinking we're expecting more of a, a handful of harried, overworked and underpaid nurses and teams of 18-year-old squaddies and cabin crew trying to keep you, or more likely your gran, alive. So risk the economy and lockdowns. Those of us in our 20s, uh, the risks associated with socialising over summer have slipped into appearing vanishingly low. The chances of being hospitalised with COVID are slim and the death rates are even lower. These collectively make any thought of further restrictions absolutely horrifying. Alas, once again, it's not that simple. Even if we ignore that high levels of infection lead to transmission in higher risk generations, evidence is emerging of the toll that, that poorly understood long COVID can take. At the moment, there's little solid data to point to, but there are indications of four separate syndromes causing the affliction, some of which may turn out to be permanent. So to assume risk to younger working age demographics is low is still a foolish step to take without further study. We do desperately need to keep as much of the economy open as we can. Capital needs to continue flowing uh, and jobs need to be retained, lest we're left with a barren post-COVID economy after we found a way to deal with the virus. The real problem with the economy, of course, is that nobody really understands how it works anymore. It's all very much, if we jump off this cliff and we don't look at the ground, we won't hit it, sort of level of suspending disbelief. We do know, though, that keeping people working is good, both for GDP, although don't get me started on the endless growth delusion, which we need to keep, throw, uh, which we need to keep increasing to keep throwing debt at hospitals and for everybody's physical and mental well-being. But that cannot come at the price of allowing the disease to run rampant through the population. The collapse of the health system would be a disaster the likes of which we in recent generations haven't seen. There's been a huge amount of protest regarding the targeted shutdowns of the hospitality industry in particular. The argument being that hospitality isn't single-handedly spreading the disease. There are good arguments here. Unfortunately, hospitality has many factors working against it. Large numbers of households gather in bars, pubs and restaurants for extended periods of time. People eat and drink, which necessitates removing masks, and they speak at elevated levels, which encourages respiratory droplets to travel further. The final nail in the coffin has been the coming of the autumnal weather, pushing patrons inside, shutting the windows. Ventilation is proving to be absolutely key to reducing COVID transmission. And this is where the abject failures of the government come in. With an effective and world-beating, test, track and trace system, our control measures could well have worked. But after many months and an absolutely astonishing £12 billion spend, we still don't have an effective working system. Excelgate has shown us that the piss-poor implementation by incompetent outsourced teams has rendered us with a total lack of intelligence of what's going on. The long-awaited, much-lauded app still doesn't integrate with some testing results systems, meaning positive cases can't log themselves as such, so their contact won't be alerted. And so trust in COVID-reducing restrictions and the government in general has faltered, and we as a, nature, as a nation are becoming ever less compliant. Half-assed and incredibly complicated localised restrictions are feeding confusion and frustration. You need look no further for evidence than the videos of Liverpool City Centre on the eve of enhanced restrictions coming into place, uh, with people dancing and partying in the streets in huge, huge crowds, uh, just before it slipped into the very high category, whatever very high really means. 
the people shown in that video aren't malicious. They're just bereft of patience. They know that hospitality staff will go largely unsupported. Most people on minimum wage don't stand a chance of paying their rent when they only receive two thirds of their wage. Um, and perhaps there's also sprinkling threatened in those videos. Other regions are still in negotiations over what their local restrictions will be. Uh, the government's been equivocating and passing the book to local authorities while well, the days are going on and local transmission is, is, is running wild. <clears throat> That's not to say that in theory, localised restrictions don't make sense. A one-size-fits-all approach would seem nonsensical. But the new tiered system in which the tiers are common, except when they're not, and postcodes changing tier by the hour is maddeningly complex. I'm genuinely sure, not sure which tier that I'm in, and I sure as hell don't know the difference between them. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm still allowed to go to Wales, but only before lunchtime. I, I fear that all of this is shutting the stable door weeks after the corona horse has bolted. Slow reactions, incompetent government response, and ignoring their scientific advisors are all deja vu from the absolute mess of February and March. Johnson's cabinet is trying once again to make everybody happy, which will surely lead to inevitably more strict restrictions that try and to try and prevent the overwhelming of the health system. All this is in the full knowledge that full lockdown is the equivalent of taking a sledgehammer to the operating theatre because we've let somebody drive off with the scalpel. Uh, and to follow on steal a tweet that was that was shown to me today, there was no lockdown. Middle class people hid indoors while working class people brought them stuff. So my two cents on the whole thing, we fucked the duck on this. <laughs> and I say, uh, I say we because we've all played a part. We all had a sense of relaxation over summer, including our, our leaders, uh, that we could push those restrictions. Uh, and our leaders did exactly the same thing. And they've totally failed to use that time to put measures in place that would keep our heads above water this winter. So by all means, let's hope for the best. Let's try our hardest to make sense of these new restrictions, which is no mean feat. Um, but let's not be surprised if, if shit gets real in a few weeks. So stay safe. Anyway, if you like the sort of stuff we're putting out, we're going to try and experiment a little bit more with video uh, at the moment because the weekly vlogs, we just haven't been finding time to, to put out. But um, have a look at our website where the main blog is with all the graphs and the graphics and the links and sources, which is at whatjusthappened.news. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WJHblog. Uh, Instagram, sorry, is at whatjusthappennews. And follow us at Facebook where we put it all out. Thanks, guys.